Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley talking to you on episode 101 of the Criterion Reflections podcast, which I and my guests are going to be discussing John Waters' film from March of 1972, Pink Flamingos. This is a notorious, infamous, polarizing, divisive, absolutely mind-bending film that uh, has bubbled up from the underground. It took a while to kind of catch on. It became a midnight movie classic and is, for all intents and purposes, a major cultural touchstone, for better or for worse. And uh, I am absolutely delighted to uh, have a great crew on tonight as we uh, dive into the complexities and the emotions and the historical significance of this very pivotal film. So uh, let's just get right into it by introducing our panel, uh, starting off with Brad McDermott. Brad, welcome back. Nice to talk to you again. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Brad, and, and I really appreciate your willingness to jump into this. <laughs> I'm very eager to hear your take, as I am with everybody else. But uh, our second guest is William Remmers. William, hello again. Hello, David. Hey. And our third guest, or fourth panelist altogether, is a new person on this podcast, making her podcasting debut in all formats, Shelly Sampin. Shelly, I'm so delighted to have you. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for jumping into the podcasting world. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. No, uh, but I, I'm so excited to join you guys and to talk about this amazing film. Well, thank you so much. I, it's really great to have a new voice on here, especially for a film that, uh, well, it's complicated. <laughs> Let's just say that. So, so Shelly, tell us just a little bit about yourself. I want to give you a chance to kind of... Uh, you know, talk to our listeners. Uh, I'm sure there's a fair number of folks who follow you on Facebook. You've been pretty active in some of the Criterion fan groups that are out there. But, uh, you know, just kind of give us a little bit of a picture of who Shelly is and, uh, you know, what you're all about. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I, I started out, I have loved film forever. I have parents that were incredibly influential in my love of cinema, um, especially classic cinema. And uh, I grew up wanting to direct films. So I went to film school um, at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in, my, uh, in the early 90s and realized very quickly that I do not have the chops to be a film director, uh, nor did I want to be a film director. What I really wanted to do was just study film, and I did not have a program for that. So I became a boring corporate person. And um, <laughs> so... Film uh, just became my hobby, and uh, I, I have always loved films in the Criterion Collection. My first film um, was uh, given to my first Criterion film was The Third Man, which was given to me when I was about 20 uh, by my uncle, and um, my collection has grown since then, and I'm now uh, one of those uh, annoying completists who uh, just buy everything, <laughs> and I say annoying in quotes, and um, so, but now it's really exciting because in my mid-40s, I've gone back to school and I'm still doing, well, not in corporate work anymore. I'm now in uh, the nonprofit sector for the past 16 or so years. Um, but um, I've gone back to school for a double major in history and film studies because now they have a program. So I've been able to um, not only expand my film horizons through my education, but also through the various Facebook uh, groups where I've met you guys 
and engage with you guys and you know kind of the other I would say Mount Rushmore of other wonderful podcasters, but there's still more of them. So I'll call you the uh, Algonquin Roundtable or something instead. <laughs> um, you know, you guys and um, Josh and Daisuke and Aaron and uh, Doug, et cetera. So I'm missing everyone else. I, I apologize. Um, so it's just, it, that's kind of been my journey. And um, so, the, and, which leads us to this extremely wonderful classic film. <laughs> You know, it is a classic of a sort, you know, <laughs> and I really, like I said, eager to hear everybody's reactions to this. Uh, Brad and William, you are kind of newbies to the world of pink flamingos. So, uh, you know, that's going to be very fascinating because like Shelly, I think you posted on one of your Facebook uh, comments there that you've seen this film at least 25 times, I think which so. is like, yeah. And, and, and that's remarkable. Like, has that been like in theaters? Like, were you like a midnight movie kind of fanatic who saw it with like raucous crowds or was this a home video thing or a combination? Tell no. me a little bit more about your history with the film. Yeah. So what I, you know, my first exposure to John Waters, like so many people was the original Hairspray. Um, I saw that when I was a freshman in high school and when it came out and I thought, this is quirky and fun. And, you know, it wasn't, obviously it's what we now know is John Waters light, but I really liked it. And, but the problem was, is that in the late eighties, at least in Milwaukee where I live, um, there wasn't a lot of, you know, you couldn't really just walk into your blockbuster and get pink flamingos. So um, I, I was able to, in film school, uh, the first time I saw pink flamingos was a screening of like a cult film festival at the student union. And I was horrified and enamored. Um, yeah. But then, but two then, very I, apt adjectives to, to yes, yeah. <laughs> but but I but what I consider what I like to say, even though that was my virgin screening, I would like to, I, I I was able to catch it only once on the big screen, and that was for the 25th anniversary re-release in 1997, and um, we have this large, um, wonderful old movie palace that was built in 1927 um, called the Oriental Theater. It is what it is. And um, it's got, you know, this, you know, the crazy gilded lions and it's wonderful, this huge theater. And I think that they misread um, Milwaukee's um, uh, enthusiasm for seeing pink flamingos in a, in like a, a large setting. Because when we went, my friends uh, Jack and Pat and I went, um, it was, uh, there were about 10 people, including us in the theater. And by the time the movie was over, there was about four people in the theater. And, um, <laughs> and it was, my favorite part of the story is that, like, I think it was during, um, uh, I, I'll just say, I won't say more, I'll just say the chicken part. All of a sudden, this elderly couple gets up and walks out and and Jack and I looked at each other and I'm like okay first of all <laughs> I have questions it's like you know did they did they um first of all was that the first thing that offended them second of all did they like bypass remains of the day and like you know look at the poster for remains of the day which is right next to the pink flamingos one to say <laughs> oh well we could, we could see um, Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson in a you know romantic thing, or we could watch the the picture with the drag queen in the bright red, bright pink dress, 
pointing a gun at us. Let's go with the drag queen. And and it's like, what did you expect? You know, I, I thought it was it was so great. But anyway, so that's a full wrong turn. <laughs> yeah, I just I, I still to this day, it's like twenty five years later, I still have questions. It's like I I mean they're probably long gone by now, but it's like I thought to myself, I really want to ask them what you know what they were thinking. So that that's I consider that to be my seminal exposure. That's a very fascinating <laughs> anecdote, especially in your in this big historic theater with a really kind of a micro crowd. Uh, my my, I'll just kind of give you my introduction to Pink Flamingos. I first saw it; it had to be nineteen eighty or eighty one. This is when I was just kind of getting myself kind of settled into the punk rock Bay Area San Francisco scene of that time in the early eighties. And I had uh, I had done the midnight movies things for a few years. I'd been to Rocky Horror. I'd seen uh, what some some Yodorowsky films. Um, yeah, you know, a, a few others. I mean, there were there was just a, a whole circuit of of movies that were typically playing on Friday and Saturday nights, midnight movies, you know, et cetera. And and there was a, a significant crowd that would always turn out in those years. And so one of those weekends I saw pink flamingos and it was pretty mind blowing. I have to say it was quite an experience to see it in that era. And this was a slightly censored version. Um, I didn't know what I was missing at the time, but you, you referenced the chicken scene that was kind of edited out. And there was a collective groan from the audience because the actual, you know, engagement i guess you'd say between uh was it crackers and and uh, the cookie molar character that was actually deleted completely all we saw was um cotton kind of staring through the window referencing whatever was going on there so i didn't know what i was missing there but there were a bunch of other scenes the 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 surfing bird scene kind of seared itself into my memory <laughs> for all time and 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 of course the infamous uh you know scene at the end where you know, divine picks up a turd off the sidewalk and chomps it right there on camera i i did not know what i was getting myself into it was just another sort of a social thing to do hanging out with this new crowd of people i was just getting to meet <laughs> and it, it like i say it, it kind of blew my mind i i remembered it quite vividly and i didn't know exactly how to process it it was kind of a sensory overload for me and so it's been sort of lingering there in memory ever since uh, i was aware that the criterion collection had released this in 97 as a 25th anniversary uh, laser disc and i had a chance to watch it through a friend who got me a copy of that film uh, ripped from the laser disc on a streaming platform. Uh, but then quite coincidentally, but uh, very synchronistically, uh, this film has become available on the Criterion channel uh, as of the beginning of June. So, um, you know, this, this film has been on my podcasting list for, you know, the last several years since I went to this format. And uh, I think Brad and William signed up and then Shelly, you signed up at some point in the process as well. But I, I will have to say, I, I have been approaching this with a bit of fear and trepidation because this is a movie that is transgressive, not in some kind of cloying, 
cliche, you know, tidy sense. This is a film that is truly offensive. <laughs> in the poster, John Waters, you know, the original release poster, which I have embedded in the show notes uh, from 1972, you know, John Waters says, prepare for a vile evening. And, and uh, that's truth in advertising, folks. There are so many boundaries crossed here. There are so many uh, depictions of depraved, indecent, very warped things going on here that, um, you know, this is a movie that I think anybody who feels it has a very legitimate right to be completely offended, not in a cute or ironic way. <laughs> and so that's kind of where I'm coming from. This this is a film that that really crosses a lot of lines. And at the same time, um, I understand it is a it is a cry of liberation. It is a it is a reaction, even a rebellion against uh, life experiences that have fueled many people to embrace this movie as a kind of a rite of passage, as a as a an ultimate expression. And so, I want to do my best as a facilitator of our conversation tonight to honor both perspectives. That there are people who absolutely detest this movie. Uh, who feel like it's a disgrace, it's an abomination, it's a horror. The world would be a better place if it had never been made. I understand that perspective. I also understand, like I said, that there's a there's an upside here. Uh, and I think it's about the wit. It's about the um, the creative freedom and the self-awareness to say, we're not doing this for the sake of sheer indulgence there's a point here and i kind of want to get into that but i also want to just give everybody a chance to speak their mind uh and and uh and celebrate or <laughs> react however uh you you know sincerely and earnestly feel so let's go ahead and get some takes from brad and william and then we'll shelly we'll get back to you as i want to hear a little bit more about your unabashed love for this film and the delight and all of that uh but brad let's go ahead and give you a first shot what is your take on pink flamingos um well i love this movie um uh, I so my relationship with John Waters has been more about who he is as a person, especially um, he's such a figure in uh, the queer community, um, queer cinema, and he pops up everywhere. Right. Like he's always being interviewed um, when there's documentaries on aspects of the queer community. He's usually always featured. He's usually always a guest on some sort of talk show and his uh, presence hasn't really diminished over the years, even if um, he's not really cranking out new movies. His top 10 cinema list is always talked about, as we all know, at the end of the year, everybody wants to know what's on John Waters' list. So I more I know I come from more that aspect of him, and I had not actually seen any of his films rather embarrassingly, but Pink Flamingos is one that just gets talked about. So many of my friends, like gay and straight, they just know this movie. And there's just things that you, everyone knows about this movie. It stars a drag queen named Divine. Everyone has seen that dress she's in at the end with uh, pointing the gun, right? It was the poster. It's just such an iconic image that's been replicated everywhere. I, I know about the talking asshole. <laughs> I know that she eats dog poop at the end. These are just scenes that are so uh, talked about within 
you know, cinema circles, queer circles, everything. Um, that even sometimes this film feels like I had seen like half of it already, even though it was the I just watched it for the first time last week. Um, so the uh, the other film of his I've seen is Female Trouble, and um, I really love Female Trouble. It's a great film. Um, I th- I think I like Female Trouble a bit more than Pink Flamingos, but Pink Flamingos has those just transgressive scenes in it that you just they're just so iconic like i said they're iconic you can't replicate them that i can i totally see the argument of pink flamingos being the most popular one absolutely um so yeah i guess that's my that's where i come from uh for john waters and and this film yeah well we'll definitely want to talk about john waters because you're right he is a a, a very powerful, very influential, and very significant cultural figure. He's still going at it. He just turned 75 earlier this year. Uh, I just happened to listen to a podcast where he was on with Mark Moran in that WTF program. Not really a big fan of Mark Moran, but it was a good conversation just to hear John Waters. And uh, we'll, we'll get into him a little bit. Um, yeah, he, he's got he's he's got a lot of things to say, and I, I really appreciate you know, kind of what, what he stands for and, and how he's gone about his business at this point in his career. Uh, let's go ahead and get William's take. Will, what do you have to say about Pink Flamingos? Well, I was so happy to, to finally see Pink Flamingos. Everything Brad said in terms of the film's notoriety and notability and the reputation that precedes it is exactly my experience as well. I think that knowing certain elements of the film, particularly the ending as a... Uh, standout moment of shock value and as a a calling card for the film Um, these things i think i've known as long as i've been alive like i don't i don't remember a time before i was aware of these aspects of the film or its existence or of john waters but it took until our multiple maniacs episode before i saw any of his films and in that episode i was recommended that this should be the next thing i saw and it's been now about three or four years and then this is now the next one i'm seeing So I'm going very slowly, I guess, chronologically through the catalog. Um, I'll have to get back to Mondo uh, Trasho at some point, but uh, I will, I will get there. Um, But this, this was a, this was a thrill. I I really enjoyed it. Everything I liked about Multiple Maniacs felt like it was here in a different way. Um, I could see the the riffing on some of the same themes and uh, I flat out enjoyed the experience. Um, I don't, I, it's, it was it was interesting though I felt like um, I was I was shocked in some ways that meant meant a lot to me in terms of how I viewed the film uh, at nearly 50 years old uh, and I had earlier that evening watched a very tame pre-code uh, romance comedy from 1930 and just thinking about the fact that Pink Flamingos is older now than that, that those two films were from each other yeah. Uh, I'm I'm very very glad this movie exists, and um, I'm I'm also glad to see that it really holds up. Well, okay, so so we've got our platforms established here. We've got three pretty much you know big fans, uh, even though Brad and Will are per, pretty new to it. Um, I am honestly a lot more ambivalent. I, I watched it um, on that streaming platform I referenced earlier several weeks ago and i you know i was i was home by myself and watching it i didn't i didn't have that same kind of bonding experience because it was partly maybe during the day 
maybe partly it was just a mood thing. Um, and, and some of the humor fell a little bit flat for me. Now I have listened to the commentary track. I have certainly, you know, considered and read up on it. I, I do appreciate a lot of the, you know, like I say, the, uh, sort of the, the, the heightened extremity of the film and, and the, um, the, the outburst. And I totally relate to that sense of sort of almost retaliation <laughs> as I think about, uh, John Waters and his little circle of misfit and outcast friends and the experiences that they endured in a, in a society that's been pretty repressed and pretty, uh, you know, um, condemning of people like them. And this is kind of their, their, their response to all of that. So I, I mean, maybe let me just ask it, Shelley, tell me a little bit more about your, your affection for this film. Um, and, and, you know, what's drawn you back to it uh, multiple, multiple times for repeat viewings? Well, I think that um, as I was listening to Brad and William, I, you know, it's like I, I was thinking about how kind of like I was, I kind of attributed to how I felt about Jaws. When I was a kid, Jaws scared the crap out of me because yeah. of the shark. And when I got, when I rewatched it, when I got older, it scared the crap out of me because I thought, of the suspense. It's like, how are they going to get out of this situation? It wasn't the shark anymore. It was the situation. Um, you know, they're in the middle of the ocean. And I feel kind of that way. It's, it's so bizarre to compare pink flamingos with Jaws. But um, when I first saw pink flamingos, you know, I was young and I was, you know, kind of into like, really like in like a punk sensibility and you know, screw the system and et cetera, you know, those kind of ideals. And um, so I really saw a lot that I liked in, you know, a lot of punk rock in, in Pink Flamingos. And when I watched it, you know, in the middle of my Pink Flamingos experience, you know, I was um, primarily, you know, my, almost my entire friends group were gay male. And so it, it's like, we just, you know, we all, you know, love this film and, it, you know, embrace it. I used to make legendary mixtapes. And what I would do is I, cause I still couldn't get my, my hands on a copy of this in like, even like the mid nineties. And so I used to go and rent it over and over again from this like local, like cult video store. And, um, I would watch it repeatedly. And then I, my TV and my VCR was hooked up to my stereo. So I would, I recorded the audio from the movie and I would put them into like mixtapes with the dialogue. And so like in between <laughs> songs, it'd be like, you know, uh, there are two kinds of people, my kind of people and assholes. And then like, you know, craft work would be like the next song or something like that. Um, but now it's like when I watch it now, I have such a, you know, as an old person, I, I have such a love for John Waters that it's such a respect for him that I, you know, I, I can't help but love this film because I see it like as, you know, I don't know. He's just, he's just, he's such an amazing, and I consider him to be like the educator. It sounds so weird, but I, I, I see him up there with like Scorsese and I think what like Barry Jenkins could be like later on and stuff. It's like, you know, just, or what Quentin, what Quentin Tarantino could have been. You know, it's like, I just, I see him being an educator and a pop culture influencer. 
and I kind of see the film through those eyes in my later years. You know, it really, he is a, a marvelous uh, kind of a humanist. He is he is bringing the perspectives of of a community that's been much maligned. I'm talking about, you know, not just the gay community, uh, but just uh, those people who just do not fit for many reasons into sort of straight society. And, uh, y- you know, obviously the sexuality is a part of it, but I think it's also just a matter of, perspective of attitude he's got a pretty finely tuned bullshit detector he he recognizes when when scams and hype and deception are going down and he calls it out he recognizes when people are uptight judgmental moralistic condemning and he's willing to give back or push back as hard as as he's feeling pushed and he has this expressive gift of um not only uh you know drawing people to him to himself and to his projects that you know are are looking for that outlet looking for that uh, opportunity to express their own feelings and emotions and and thoughts uh in response to the world around them um but he he also has this this great capacity for for witticisms i mean again i think that is such a a key because there are many other movies out there that like to, you know, go to the extreme, whether that's graphic horror, uh, you know, sex, uh, violence, uh, even just weirdness. But he does it with this panache, with this flair. He, he gets you laughing, and through that that aspect of laughing and amusement he gets you to rethink some of your own uh, hang-ups and and uh taboos and i think that's that's a very powerful and very unique gift that he has and that's really i think that been the key to his longevity uh, and his ongoing relevance uh, even as like brad said he's not really making movies anymore he's had a very checkered career as far as the you know, financial side of show business is concerned. He's he's been in, he's been out, <laughs> and uh, you know, and and that's kind of where he stands. But uh, he he has survived. He has persisted, and uh, and has shown no indication or willingness to slow down. So yeah, let, let let's talk a little bit more about John Waters, the the raconteur, the the uh, bon vivant. The cultural commentator, uh, Brad. You've you've talked about your relationship or your your awareness of Waters. Uh, tell me just a little bit more about kind of what he's meant to you, and and even though you, maybe you're still catching up, you know, on his film filmography, uh, you know, what are some other uh, perceptions you have of his work and his significance? Um, I mean, I think he like the world would be uh, such a worse place. I think without him, I think. Um, I think he's so important and, you know, going along with what Shelley was saying, like, like he just, you need someone like this. You need someone to like throw it all in the garbage and point and laugh at it and said, and say, why did you think this was so important? And like, there's no one else that I can think of that does it with such like gleeful abandon as he does. And I think he's only kind of proven himself 
more right as the years have gone on. Like you said, all of the, all of his, uh, you know, rages against the system and is pointing out hypocrisy and everything. Um, as we've just become more and more sort of, I guess, aware, socially aware, we look back on John Waters and say he was right all along. And um, I, and I think that's why he's kind of settled into this more, again, like you said, Shelley, like this more grandfathery film teacher sort of role is that um, because we see, we now have so much respect for him because everything he he said has come true. All the hypocrisies he pointed out back then, the, you know, weren't listened to have now become so naked and apparent for us all today. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, his, his movies are unlike anything else that I think I've seen. And there's, you know, there's a lot of B movies. There's a lot of movies, like you said, that shock with horror, that shock with, with, um, you know, grossness and sexuality, heavy sexuality and all that stuff. But there isn't anyone who wants to remind you that everything is bullshit. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and, you and if you are offended remember that like that that's kind of a bit on you as well why are you offended like and and if you are like you here i am giving you an opportunity to reflect this movie back on yourself and 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 hopefully you might come out a better person by the end of it i know that you know this is a film that is not easy to like that offended a great many people a great many people i respect and admire um, but when you watch this movie, like you, don't you want to feel like part of the club? <laughs> I don't know. Like that's <laughs> like, don't you want to laugh with everybody else? And do you really want to come out of here and saying, I was so offended by the talking asshole. I'm like, but why? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you have everything here. You've got cannibalism. You've got incest. You've got rape. You've got kidnapping. You've got you know, forced birth. I mean, the, the, the list of, of violations is, is really wrong. And, and that's, that is, that is truth here. You know, there are, there are acts depicted here that I think almost none of us would want to be on the receiving end in real life. Right. I mean, the, the, the conduct of these people is truly uh, despicable and, and horrifying. But, and, but at the same time, yeah, these but, are, these are things right. that exist in real life. And who are, are you to say, Oh no, thanks, please don't show me this in cinema or, you know, only show it to me to a certain degree or through a certain lens and then, or to depict it with kind of a judging, condemning aspect. Right, exactly. Like, this is terrible. Yeah, right. These people need to be punished. Right. Mm-hmm. But like you know, these things exist, and and you you need to deal with the fact that they exist, and not. <laughs> and I'm sorry if you stumbled in thinking you were going to watch Remains of the Day, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know. Or something about lawn decor in suburban America. Exactly. Or something exactly. Like that. <laughs> so many questions. I still have so many questions. <laughs> Talk right. about well, a let's double William feature that. from hell remains of the day in this. <laughs> <laughs> let's just get this day over with, can we? <laughs> so, William, uh, tell me just a little bit about more about your your kind of you know connection with John Waters and and uh, you know just kind of the significance of his career for you. I'd say, yeah, I, I can 
this is typical of me when Brad's on. I just say what Brad said is uh, I also would say. I mean, he was right on the right on the money with saying that he shows up everywhere, everywhere. I mean, he's on like the value of the dolls, beyond the value of the dolls um, disc. And I was thinking about that uh, because today is the third anniversary of us recording the Beyond the Valley of the Dolls episode. And, oh, and that was a epic. That's that, that's a, that's one of the ones that stands out in my memory. Yeah, it was it was great. It was a lot of fun, and, and it was it was so interesting to me to see how much time has passed from that film to this. Nearly the same amount of time since we recorded it, um, give or take. But how different this world feels from the <laughs> one that's being kind of lampooned in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which has which has similar aims of, of upending certain things, but um, is not in any way categorically similar to this. You could totally see why they'd have similar fans, but they're very different operations. But seeing that like a product of a studio system and this, the actual, um, at the time, what could probably be described by a lot of people as outsider art, um, as they learn to make these films in the lowest budgets possible, which is one of the most pure ways in which to make something and, and to express something. Um, it, uh, it really appeals to me to see that uh, we've really broken into the seventies. You know, we've really broken into a different era. We've broken into the post deep throat era and the, the importances of that and the importances of, as this podcast continues, what sorts of content we're going to see um, a, the gauntlet has been thrown by pink flamingos in 1972 as a sort of new mark to meet. Uh, I I hadn't seen any of the films, like I said, until Multiple Maniacs, but that felt very much to me like a missing piece of a puzzle of, you know, something that I, I was always going to like and one day would come when I would finally see it because I, I adored that movie. I thought it was beautiful and funny and thrilling. And so much of what I like about that is almost the same in this. There's, there's so many similar aspects in terms of the um, the group violence in terms of how factions develop against each other and that you basically have cool outsiders and assholes. You really do have those two groups of people. Um, and despite the fact that uh, David Lockery and Mink Stoll are really the assholes, uh, they're so cool and stylish and glamorous. And in spite of all of the filth and trash, I, I can't, I can't help but think that these two dyed folks with their dyed pubes licking each other's feet isn't one of the most glamorous and cool moments in a movie. It's just like, they're awesome. Look at them. They're so cool. They're such great villains. They, they are, um, they're so wonderful. And it was great to see them back kind of an interesting parallels to roles from before divine's role is, is pretty similar to the role she had in um, multiple maniacs. So that each of these tentpole people, now that I've seen two of the films, I'm, understanding the the dreamlanders and understanding what this group actually represents in more than just the one film and i think because i waited three years or so to watch it multiple maniacs is now mythic for me it's this past thing and i was seeing now another myth in the tales of these characters of these especially like the five or six principal 1970s dreamlander people who are in a lot of these early films and i'll probably wait a little while before i see female trouble but um it's uh, it, it it was great. It was it was really great to revisit this group now. See them in full color, and see them you know same sort of cars, same sort of um, living rooms, but on a completely different bent and going for different aims. I think. I mean, the one thing that 
is very prevalent in multiple maniacs in terms of um, offensiveness that isn't here is the sort of religious sacrilege element, which is like a driving factor in a lot of the set pieces of that film. Um, and, and the offensiveness of that film, I think, is, is sort of limited compared to this. Um, in fact, that film might be more of a romp when you compare it to what's going on here. But even when I was incredibly offended, I think there's probably the, I don't know if offended is the right word, but definitely like I never looked away, but there are occasional moments in this film where you, you, you want to, and I'm sure many people do, but I think it may have been the chicken scene that is the most difficult because it, you, you think about the difficulties of um, actually making that material. The actual act of making that material, it can't be faked in the way that you're, it's just, it's exactly what you're seeing. But it goes on for just the right amount of frames before a hard cut back to Edith and her eggs. And it's so funny because no matter what they show you, you can always cut back to Edith Massey and the Eggman. <laughs> and all of my fears and, 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 and worries go away because <laughs> it's, she's so pure and beautiful. And I got I I I fucking love eggs like I really do. <laughs> I love eggs, and just the fact that that her whole character is devoted to eggs, and there's an egg like that was so beautiful to me. So even you could go from the chickens, and it's the right amount of, you know, acid in the audience's eye, and then back to the eggs. And I think that um, that felt so playful and disarming that I I could never be upset at anything in this picture. I, I would all, I had my mouth open and with a um, gasped, gasping smile, I guess, or, or, uh, or maybe a gaping smile might be more appropriate. <laughs> just, as, uh, just enough to put an egg right in there. Egg. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, it strikes me that we haven't really even talked about the film itself quite yet. We've already gotten into the meta analysis, but yeah. So what we have here is a competition between a couple, uh, and the marbles and divine who who claims the title of the filthiest person alive and it really is it's set up as this kind of kind of gang rivalry one one is a couple the other is a family but you know there's this this kind of you know, you know to use the word mythic that williams already uses mythic uh you know clash of the titans who is the most depraved person in in the world or in this society and, and that's that's basically the driving force but but you know let's just talk a little bit about this this whole concept of of filth and and uh, you know th this this kind of extremity that that uh, waters is is unleashing through his his um you know his script through the filming uh, through the cast of characters and how one scene after another after another just kind of keeps topping itself in terms of you know how low can you go or how you know how purely can you know out on a limb can can you project yourself in terms of what's something that's even more you know offensive and deplorable than the scene that preceded it. What is the value there? I mean, how, how does that connect with us? And, and what is what is the function, I guess I'm trying to get to, of, of this kind of piling on effect? You know, it, it does get people laughing. It's that nervous laughter. It's like, I can't believe what I just saw or what they just said or how fully 
into this particular style of of <laughs> relating and and confronting um, other people these these characters are going uh, i don't know who wants to pick that up just that thought thought of um you know because this is just so in your face that this movie is and and what is that saying and and how does that affect us well i you know i i, I listened i watched the film yesterday and then i watched it again with the commentary and which i i would recommend anybody listening to this to watch the commentary because listen to the commentary because it's essential i agree it's incredible and i mean there were times when I was, I felt, because I was so interested in what John Waters was saying, and, and I was, and I was also watching the film again while, you know, like, you know, with the sound off, and, um, and there were times where I was like, oh, I wish he would go back and, and refer to some, like, some of my favorite parts, but he was just, like, talking about something, you know, um, which was great, but, um, what I thought was so funny was <laughs> he considered the shot of the vagina being Inste- artificially inseminated to be the filthiest shot of the film. And, mm-hmm. I, and I thought that, that was just kind of interesting because I guess, I don't know what that says about me, but I didn't think that that was the, like the grossest shot of the film. Um, but um, I think that, you know, I feel like once you get past the chicken part, which is, um, I would say if I had to, to throughout the entire film, Again, I don't know what this says about me, but if there's one thing that I just kind of go, eh, it's the chicken part, but I can still watch and laugh at it. Um, but it's like, once you get past that, it's like everything else is like gravy. You know, it's like, you just, it just, it just keeps building and building and building. And, and, but you, you become so tempered to it. So like when the, <laughs> the police come and you know, everyone goes to the trailer, and like one of my favorite moments is when falls out of the trailer with like their sticks and their axes to kill the policemen and then eat them. I mean, I am howling with laughter, and again, I'm thinking to myself, "What is the matter with me?" But I don't care, you know. And and what's what's really funny is, you know, um, my partner Chris. You know, I I tried to talk him into watching it with me last night. He wasn't having it. And so I was describing it, but he kept saying, I can hear you howling and screeching from the other room. And this is me watching it by myself. So I can only, that's why I'm enjoying this conversation so much, because who do I get to talk about Pete Flamingos with, you know? So, so it's a very select audience. It, it, really, it really is. Um, but yeah, it's like, so I really feel like, you know, yes, it's, it's the totality is potentially incredibly shocking but on the other hand it just keeps building so much that you just really become inured to it by the end and just kind of like oh okay divine's gonna eat shit now you know it's just like you know whatever Yeah, right. The the course has been charted. We are going to, you know, take this thing to the limit and then we'll come back to our normal lives and kind of go about being kind and considerate people and not necessarily, you know, acting out the roles. I mean, that 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 is another point of discussion, I suppose, is is, you know, where where do we draw that line? Because again, I I mean, my personal values are kindness, empathy, respect, you know, trying to understand the other person's point of view, uh, patience, and 
you know, letting people be themselves. And that's not exactly the, the ethos <laughs> that's on display here. I mean, these people are incredibly reactive, hostile, aggressive, uh, provocative. I mean, they are stirring up trouble at every turn, you know, and, and that's not how I want to live my life. And that's, and, you know, I, I you know, Shelly, you mentioned earlier, you're in the nonprofit sector, as am I, I'm in social services, I'm in like therapy and mental health and wellness and <laughs> recovery and all of that. So it's like, I, I can't point to this movie as like, here's a treatise on how to coexist with your, you know, with your neighbor, or even how to, you know, practice your own sort of internal discipline of of being being wise and mature but there is something undeniably cathartic about this about just sort of casting at least temporarily all those inhibitions you know, all those hang-ups and saying okay if i just let it rip <laughs> what, what, what would it feel like what would it be like and and i think that is kind of the to me at least that's that's the point of identification that that I do find as a positive for, for what this movie is, is setting out to accomplish. You know, I, I agree with you. And, and one thing I want to mention is both William and Brad kind of um, touched on this too, and, and you as well, um, David, but you know, it's like, you know, he, Waters is, he's, he's champion of the misfit. And one of the things that drew me to Hairspray in the first place was that his heroine, was this, you know, chub, this, this chubby girl who has, and, and as a, as a chubby girl, I was like, I, I saw this, I saw the chubby girl with a ton of self-confidence who gets the guy and she like wins. She's like the queen. And, and, and it was like, that's pretty cool. You don't get to see that that often. And I love that he, that he does that throughout his films. You know, he, he, the way he champions divine, regardless of the stuff that he's doing, is, it's, it's beautiful to see. You know, he, he treats divine as, like, his his queen, you know, it's like, that the, the queen that divine is. I mean, I, divine is my spirit animal. I absolutely <laughs> love him yeah, well, so it, much. Isn't it, isn't it crazy and absurd? Well, what divine is your, yeah. sorry. Uh, isn't it? Isn't it crazy? Well, you you have Divine as your Facebook uh, avatar, right? Um, it, it, uh, he was for a while. I I, I oh, okay. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of of, of inserting Divine um, gifs everywhere. Um, but it's uh, right. it, but I just I, I so I feel like um, you know, even with all the depravity, I I love I I feel like there's like this <laughs> of this warmth um to his films. Where he's he's featuring these outsiders and the and these misfits that people would just like normally run away from and maybe they should I don't know but it's like but I I, I just think, I find that to be very endearing. Brad, you had a statement. Go ahead and get. Yeah, I, just to to jump off of what Shelley uh, I was saying about love for divine. I just isn't it kind of absurd how much we do love divine like. Uh, she's so you know angry and nasty, <laughs> and she does all of this crazy shit, and um, and 
we love her. Like there's a statue in Baltimore devoted to her. Like John Waters, her entire image, it was just elevated on John Waters' love for her um, and, 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 and it shows in the way he filmed her. And like, it's kind of absurd to think about it. To, to how much we we I uh, we identify with that it comes like because divine was um you know at the time the drag was can you know uh everybody was you know doing their best to look as gorgeous and outrageous but not in a trashy way in a you know like like as beautiful and pretty that kind of drag um with the big you know singing the big numbers and the big show tunes and all that kind of stuff and and here they were kind of modeling themselves after like you know hollywood exactly glamour guys, exactly right? I mean- Spelt, slim, buxom, talented, mm-hmm. you know, like you say, like living the dream of, of you know, the Marlena Dietrich or Judy Garland or whoever you styled yourself after. And to always was, want to, yeah. uh, you know, emulate uh, higher up on the on the class level. You were always trying to read a Hayworth. You know, all yeah, that, exactly. Right to pass yourself off as like a, ho- a huge Hollywood actress. And, and here is Divine. Like, and John Waters just throwing that all in the garbage. Like, no, we're just going to make this nasty. And like, there's an entire branch of that kind of drag that stems from from everything that the two of them did. Um, a drag that's meant to shock and um, to, to offend and to upend social norms. Um, and that is its, I mean, that is drag's power. Um, that is its greatest... Uh, ability in culture is to to constantly do that um, all the time. Yeah, it's kind of a court court jester type of thing, like, like things that nobody else get away with saying. Yeah, the the fool can, can blurt out exactly. there, and everybody has to deal like with it. King Lear's <laughs> fool. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's and, and I don't know if you guys have seen the documentary. I am divine, um, but I it's so interesting, and what's so fascinating is that you know Glenn Milstead divine you know he never he it's like he he dressed as this character but never identified it was it, it it's different from you know like Brad you you called divine chic and I I've noticed that John Waters and even in his commentary it was always he and it's because he didn't want to be identified he didn't identify as female he, it was a very specific character, mm-hmm. you know, that he played. And I think that that's really interesting because, um, you know, we see Divine and we, just, we see this, you know, just bigger than life, amazing, crazy, big outlandish figure. But in reality, he just, when Milstead, just saw it as a, as a character. And I think that that's really interesting as well. Well, and it seems like it was a character that grew out of something kind of primal and, you know, deep-seated within him as a person. And I think it's also very important to recognize that John Waters and Divine were just like teenage childhood friends. I mean, they, they knew each other from a very early age and just kind of found each other <laughs> in the outskirts of Baltimore and... uh you know, it's, it's one of those symbiotic relationships that launched them both to new heights. Of course, uh, Divine Glenn Milstead passed away in his early 40s. Uh, he probably had some 
you know, some health issues. Uh, I apparently, you know, you know, his, his diet and his lifestyle probably took its toll. And, and the day that he died, uh, was the day before he was supposed to be cast as a character on the TV series, married with children. And that could have taken his career in a whole different direction. Of course, we just don't know what was never, you know, apparently meant to be. But, you know, it, it is quite remarkable, the the impact and the enduring legacy of this, of this actor who, you know, st- in some ways seems to have stumbled onto something that kind of galvanized and caught fire and connected with a lot of people and, uh, and is celebrated to this day. So, yeah, it's, it's quite a remarkable career. Uh, William, you want to say a little bit more about Divine and, and kind of uh, his impact as a performer, uh, as uh, someone who's uh, in the performing arts yourself? Divine fucking rules. Yeah. I like it, the whole, it's like <laughs> the, it, this whole movie, well, the, the thing I love, the thing that I'm really loving about John Waters is his, is his writing. His dialogue is so wonderful, and he has exactly the right people for it. He, he knows exactly who these people are, how they're going to say it, how they're going to scream it more like. And scream and, and the thing about it is, is like the, the variations to which certain performers deliver that dialogue with various levels of conviction um, is never more sort of authoritative and commanding than when it's in Divine's mouth. When it's, when it's coming out of Divine, think of the turd scene <laughs> and the way that Divine holds that frame the, says, the turd in the box that's, that that's is not the one the turd off the side right exactly and <laughs> so um i mean because the thing about like some of the other performers like mink stole who I, I also love so much you can tell like that she's playing some of the material like you know it's all unraveling around her i mean she loses at the end so obviously that's going to be what happens but even when divine um when divine's been uh affronted in some way been been attacked in some way all you get is power and confidence Mm -hmm. you never see anything but the full pride and command of this character from beginning to end which is similar to how how i felt in the the previous film but here it's it's upped so much and really encapsulated most at the um, press conference trial sequence near the end where some of the best divine lines of the movie happen that are the clearest and sort of quotable because they're just ex- explanations of exactly how she feels. Um, so I, uh, I was very, very, very uh, on board. But the thing is, I want everyone to win. I felt like the movie invited me to be a part of these, these communities. And though I knew I was going to have to see the marbles get their comeuppance, um, everybody's just so, so glamorous in a way. I think that's, that's something that is interesting to me about the fact that um she could say that filth are her politics, filth is her life, but I still see the glamour in it. And I still see that there's such such style and, and coolness. And it might be subjective, certainly, that, that maybe some people can't see through some of the grime in the aesthetic, but just look at the dress, the dress that everybody knows and how that appears. I mean, it's not inconsequential. So... Um, there's there's a lot going on. Look look at Mink Stoll's uh, attire in this film and in Multiple Maniacs. These are very very chic outfits at times. Um, and and as far as I understand, uh, that the chicness in attire was something that Divine was already going for in, in real life. 
I think that uh, a quote I heard was about that Divine's mom said that he, she was surprised he could handle being on the set considering how fancy he'd like to be or the, the attire he'd, he'd rather be wearing nothing that's this grim or dirty and in a frozen trailer. You could see everybody's breath. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's clear, it was clearly a film that everybody had to dig in deep for. But in spite of that, everybody feels like queens and kings. Well, and to, and to bring their personal wardrobe into because there was like like say there was no budget, there was no you know wardrobe department. <laughs> you had to bring it out of your closet and and make it happen. And I think that's why there's a consistency um, in in the way these some of these characters feel played by the same performers, especially David Lockery and Mink Stoll. I mean, with the name like Mink Stoll, you're expecting somebody who's going to look glamorous and have a certain. Um, eccentricity to the amount of uh, fancy things she's going to adorn herself with. And I think that's certainly true in multiple maniacs and definitely true here. I can, I can understand why their servant wants to dress like them because, and why, why you would want to project yourselves upon them because um, they are so powerful in, in, in a way that um, is not admirable, but you sort of wish you could be a bad guy like them. Because the big difference between them and Divine, I think, is sort of important, too. The sort of villains are after this glory in the newspaper, whereas uh, Divine Divine just is, right? Mm-hmm. Divine, Divine, does, yeah. Divine doesn't, doesn't um, eat the dog shit in order to confirm the title. And Divine's happy enough to just live alone and not continue to deal with it. Only when attacked uh, will she then go out and murder you. So I think we had just finished up with kind of William's riff on Divine um, <laughs> before all the interruptions there. Um, what are, let's talk about some other aspects of the filmmaking um, after our, our little technical hiccup here. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about John Waters' choice of music. Maybe we can kind of launch into the soundtrack a little bit here. He is pretty well known, especially in his early films, for being 
fairly oblivious to the idea of getting rights and permissions to, uh, you know, sample whatever music uh, comes to mind. And I think he worked most of those issues out in subsequent years. But I think even the 25th anniversary director's cut had to do a little bit of replacement of music. But um, we've talked a lot about the acting. Uh, Let's just talk a little bit about some of the other aesthetics of this film, Uh, this kind of you know, the kind of trashy B-side musical accompaniment that he uh, chose uh, both in Multiple Maniacs as well as in this film. Anybody want to talk a little bit about uh, the, the tunes and, and how the music sort of sets the mood? Well, I think that, like like you mentioned, the trashy B-side, I loved in the commentary, he mentions that the music is like the B-side of a hit record that makes you feel a little dirty. And I completely agree. I mean, I love the music um, in his films. And I think that playing The Girl Can't Help It while Divine struts around Baltimore is one of the iconic film moments of all time. I don't care if you love the film or hate the film. You've got to admit that that is a moment. And it would not... (laughs) the moment it is without that music and especially the fact that you know waters along with being problematic in terms of getting licenses which i always wondered about because i was like how is he able to afford using all this music in his films well now we know how but um also about <laughs> he, he never expected that. that these films would really take off the way they did he was just right. trying to claw his way into the show business and uh didn't quite understand he was creating legendary films even at this early stage. Absolutely. And and not only that, but also, you know, not really caring about getting permits either. And so, you know, he's <laughs> he's driving in a car with his camera, following Divine. Nobody knows what's going on, so they're all stopping and staring. I think he called it the candid camera moment of the film because people are literally stopping in their tracks and turning around and staring at Divine, who's just strutting his stuff, walking down the street with his sleeveless cocktail dress. And meanwhile, they can't hear it, but we know the girl can't help it is playing. It is such a moment. And I think it is, like I said, it is one of the iconic cinematic moments in history. <laughs> yes. I agree. It's uh, it, I, I, with everything Shelley just said. That that song is just burned into my brain with Divine just walking down. It just exudes such like casual confidence that Divine has. I mean, that Will talked about, um, and the song help amplifies that. And it also <clears throat> there's such Americana in the in the kind of music that John Waters chooses. It sort of reminds me of like. Kenneth Anger and David Lynch that like it just it just it connects this idea that divine is just something that's always has been and all of this is just a bunch of like all of this is as American as apple pie and it that makes it a little more hilarious (laughs) yeah that that raunchy saxophone that just kind of hand clapping wine 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 (laughs) yes yes I, I like the your, the B sides comment a lot, Shelley. That's really great, and it's it's making me think of um, too some, a film that is one of my very very favorites that that sp- jumped right out at me during many of those sequences with a lot of the fifties uh, rock and roll and pop tunes was Scorpio Rising, Kenneth Anger, Brad just mentioned, 
And the way that I could view aspects of this film as riffing on the countercultural cinema that has ex existed before, not just how it is just countercultural to everything, but it's even countercultural to those countercultural things that the way that the, the hit fifties rock and roll songs mythologize in a, in a much more um, sort of expressionistic way in uh, Scorpio rising um, are more improvised and uh, intense here, but even then divine, divine strutting around has certain similarities to uh, following a, a, an actress strutting around with some dogs in Poose moment, also Kenneth Anger. And then thinking about Warhol and how the Dreamlanders compare to the factory. And if you think about the heavily scripted dialogue here compared with the improvisation in Chelsea Girls, it's such a, it's such an interesting way to sort of think of hanging out in a big long take. Um, many of the scenes in Pink Flamingos just play out in long takes, but they're very written, they're very scripted but the camera follows the scene, you know, to pinpoint the focus of attention to the people because Waters knows his script, as opposed to say like in Chelsea Girls, any of those sequences are, are improvised and the camera is following the mood just in the mood that it is. So there's there's ways that I felt like this sort of kicked back against um, like that as if uh, Warhol, Warhol's gang are e like even less, less cool by comparison, like that they're phonies compared to the Dreamlanders. The Dreamliners are the real deal, and um, I don't know. There, there, there was there was uh, such a, a gritty edge to all of that, and I think the music and that sort of dirty B side element really helped. Uh, and it's grateful that he was able to secure almost all of those rights eventually. Um, but uh, all the power to him for trying to steal it first. <laughs> all right. Well, and it also creates um, inside joke moments almost. You know, like, it's not, not not like I ever, like, really seek out or encounter, um, you know, the bird is the word in, you know, everyday life. But when I have, ever since I saw Pink Flamingos, anytime I hear the, you know, I think of a gaping rectum. And, and I laugh, and I kind of turn to the person I'm with, and I think, I can't share this moment with you. It's, it's like, so it just, and if I did, I would look like a complete lunatic. So it's like, so, but it, it kind of, you know, these, these uh, moments that are just so seared into our brains, you can't help, but, you know, it's like, it's like the trashy element of like a Paul Thomas Anderson film or something where I always, or Scorsese, where I'll, I'll associate music with a scene. And this is like the, the trashy, you know, step cousin, step child of, of that whole elements only it's not something that i can like you know wax philosophical about with your average person so it kind of turns into like an inside little you know insider's thing right you you have to have that shared experience to even get it in the first place <laughs> uh, so how about pink flamingos as sort of an anti-hippie statement and and again this is another point of sort of friction for me with this film because i am in a sense kind of a an aging hippie. Um, I, I'd like the peace and love and, and flower power vibes of that era. I recognize the fragility and the very short lived, <laughs> uh, you know, lifespan of, of those values. But I, I, you know, and I was just a kid when I first kind of became aware of that. I was a hippie for Halloween in like 1968 or something like that. So, you know, but that, that has kind of a formative influence. John Waters, 
kind of had an anti-hippie manifesto as part of his driving force in making this film. And hey, you know, like, you know, Frank Zappa took the hippies down as well. So they were very ripe and, and deserving target in some ways because of the pomposity and the grandiosity uh but what about sort of pink flamingos as a very early countercultural statement to the prevailing ethos of you know uh, peace love and grooviness that uh was by 1972 definitely on its way out but he was kind of putting at least one big shiny nail in its coffin i mean i i, I guess i i'm kind of putting on my you know history students at here when I think about this question. And, you know, a lot of what I read about the counterculture movement is that, um, you know, especially out on the West Coast in San Francisco, there was just, there were so many posers. And that really brought down the the authentic, you know, movement, you know, uh, and the people that were really trying to say something. And, um, it, kind of, and it really ruined them. It, it, you know, they, they kind of ruined the party. And I feel like that might be part of, of Waters' response here, that, you know, these people are authentically themselves in Pink Flamingos. You know, the Dreamlanders are authentically themselves. And I think that this is um, kind of a response to that um, in, in some way, at least that's just my short take. And I kind of think that, like, Waters is uh, calling out, I mean, like Shelley said, sort of calling out some of the hypocrisy, hypocrisies with hippie movement in that, he, you know, he is admitting the violence um, and anger and uh, rage that they sort of said didn't exist or that they could just sort of peace, love and flower power away and everything would be fine. Um, and, you know, here waters is saying these elements are part of humanity we must confront them we must deal with them we must see cinema that helps us release these sorts of demons these angsts that we have these you know divine and her friends are a good vehicle uh for that for us yeah right i mean there there was a lot of um very entrenched homophobia racism sexism uh, even within the you know supposedly progressive you know hippie <laughs> leftist community, um, yeah, and you see a lot of that in in some of the more cherished movie element you know movies of its time. I mean, uh, my my previous episode uh, one hundred we talked about Dennis Hopper's the last movie, which was from nineteen seventy one, but you know there's all kinds of cool groovy stuff going on, but there's all kinds of uh, objectification of women and exploitation and, and again, grandiosity and arrogance and you know, all kinds of presumptions that are exploitive of other people that are embedded within the ethos of that film. And, and Dennis Hopper is a cool guy. I don't have a major problem with him, but he himself had a lot of blind spots and, and those were kind of, you know, they're, they're kind of more obvious to see, you know, 50 years later mm -hmm. than perhaps they were at the time. Uh, and, and, and so again, you, you do see pink flamingos for all of its, you know, atrocities of, of, of personal conduct as kind of a, a hallmark of, of liberation. And, and Shelley mentioned authenticity of, of just, being really true, who you are, how you see it, what you feel, what you think, and and 
taking the risk of putting it out there, knowing that there's going to be backlash, there may be even, you know, <laughs> suffering and persecution that comes because of it. Um, but because it's it's cast in the realm of a cinematic uh, creation, it's, it's a movie. Um, these impulses can be acted out without doing lasting damage. I mean, Waters himself has spoken. I've, I've heard him speak about his relationship with Leslie Van Houten, one of the girls caught up in the Charles Manson cult and, and, and the undeniably horrible things that happened there. And, and he got to know her, know her and, and has walked her through many uh, parole hearings and all of that. And he's also very judicious about speaking about that. But, you know, one of his his regrets is that she did not meet up with him and his crew because they found a safe outlet for those feelings. And I think, again, I want to kind of get back to that, that role that a film like Pink Flamingos plays in letting young people who have been put down and, and bullied and shamed and in many cases assaulted, uh, whether physically or emotionally because of just who they are, that that's a very important piece that I think gives this film um, a degree of redeeming value. But again, I don't want to soft pedal it. I don't want to make it sound like this is some kind of a, you know, uh, a scout project that uh, everybody should just warmly embrace and, and take to heart because there's anger here. There's, there is, uh, you know, a, a thrust up middle finger in the face of people who have um, made life difficult for these folks. And so I don't want to soft pedal or, or take the edge off that, that side or that aspect of what's being presented here. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know that I can completely write this off as just kind of nihilistic uh, indulgence or a big F you to uh, the rest of the world. Uh, that kind of art doesn't always really compel me because, you know, I have my own personal history. I have my own adolescent writings of, of uh, yeah, dabbling in all of the outrageous, preposterous things that I could think of that would piss off my parents and my teachers and all the other authorities in life. I mean, Alice Cooper and Kiss and many other artists have sort of made a career out of exploiting that kind of impulse. Uh, to me, John Waters takes it to a different level because he's not necessarily just resting in that. He, he's kind of asking us all to question our own presuppositions and, uh, and, and at a certain level, just let people be. And, and, and I think that's where I can make my piece of the film like this, even though, like I say, it, it, it genuinely offends, offends me and, and, and crosses some lines that I, it's like, oh, why did he have to go there? But I, I understand his, his function, his purpose in doing all that. Um, I, I think I would say that his more uh, harshest criticisms, or sorry, uh, more harshest aspects of this film, um, he gives to the villains. Um, I just mm -hmm. wanted to talk about the marbles for a second. Yeah, because please do. Yeah. Um, a lot of... This film is filled with like all of these outrageous moments, and we've cited so many of them. But like, how many 
uh, I mean, I guess killing cops and eating them is kind of a, <laughs> but like the, the worst qualities uh, uh, that the that in this film belong to the marbles, like the absolute oh, yeah. bleakest that this film gets is their kidnapping and raping of women and selling their babies. That is like the blackest aspect of this film. And to lesbian couples, don't forget. To, to lesbian, lesbian couples. couples. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yet the same time, the marbles are the only characters who get offended. I, and I think that that is um, part of the hypocrisies um, that, you know, you touched on, David, um, that like, how can you how can you claim to be the filthiest person alive? How can you claim how can you do all of these absolutely terrible things and then like scoff and be offended like, you know, you're like a wealthy 80s person at a dinner party or like like even when he's flashing his his penis attached to a sausage and he any any like he wants everyone to run away screaming, ah, I'm so offended. And then he can just cackle and then he does it to uh, a trans woman and she flashes him her penis and and then he runs away offended i'm like how can you be offended this is right right, this is what you came here for this is the arena that you play in and and i i think that there is a difference and like i it's because because babs and divine and her crew do such offensive things and marbles and their crew do such offensive things it's it's i think easy to obfuscate those but um in in a way like like bab slash divine is is our hero she rescues these girls she disposes of the villain um i don't think john waters is afraid to um, muddy those waters a bit that she sort of serves as, you know, judge, jury, and executioner at the end. But, like, I, I do think that um, there is sympathy to be gained. We are kind of in, in Divine's camp, um, and he intentionally doesn't give Divine the absolute worst, and her, and, her, and her crew, the absolute worst traits in the film. And he's very careful, I think, in, in, to do that. Right. A lot of Divine's filthiness is in just how she, you know, <laughs> lets herself go. Right. And then it, she, she is an agent of justice and retribution towards people who are villainous, but she's otherwise, she's not really out to victimize any other people. It's just the marbles who stepped into her terrain and did offensive things. Um including burning down the trailer which is like okay now now you're striking at my very home and uh, what good all-american patriot doesn't resonate with that like you you messing with my property and my family i'm gonna let you have it right so in that sense uh, divine is uh operating fully within 100 percent the uh you know the all-american ethos you know uh, and so yeah Nobody can really criticize that. But I love that the response is that Divine and Crackers then proceed to go to the Marvel's house, break in, which is, I think, one of the greatest entrances ever. I mean, it, it, there's so many like small moments in Pink Flamingos that probably bypass so many people that I find so hilarious. But them like busting into the Marvel's house is such a like a laugh out loud moment for me. 
but then proceeding to lick all of the furniture <laughs> for, you know, because, you know, and then it eventually, like, <laughs> rejects them. I, the, one of the yeah, the lines, furniture kind of kicks yeah. them off. Yeah, the, the couch, it has rejected you, is, like, one of the greatest lines. But, um, I, I, the, the, that was the response, was to do that. I mean, obviously, the further response came later. But I, I just, I, I think that is just so amazing. Well, it's like they, they, they're laying a curse on the household. Again, another way of sort of settling scores, you know, like I'm going to go in, I'm going to mess up your life because you dared to, you know, mess with me in the first place. Again, uh, how many great, you know, whatever, Westerns, crime dramas, war stories are, are based on oh, you did something terrible to me? Well, I'm going to do something terrible back to you. I mean, and audiences pump their fists and cheer. Again, the the trope is right there in front of us, and it's just that <laughs> the characters and the and the, 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 the situation is, is a little bit different than what we're used to seeing. But I, I would actually defy anybody who, you know, watches and gets emotionally engaged with more traditional types of entertainment to say, how is that fundamentally different than what we see here in Pink Flamingos? You know, it's it's like one of those Taken movies <laughs> with Liam Neeson. You mess with my kid, I'm going to pay you back, sucker, you know? And uh, that's exactly what we see unfolding here. So so what else, What other elements? Uh, are there particular scenes or uh, characters that we haven't touched on yet? I mean... Kind of open it up to whoever. The Egg Man. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You know, he, he's definitely uh, pretty low on the list of supporting characters. We got to give Waters credit. He says in the, in the commentary track that every single person who had anything to do with this movie is named personally in the credits there. So good for him is for his egalitarian <laughs> inclusion of, of all the talents. But uh, yeah, let's talk about the Eggman and, and Edith Massey, if you want to get into that. <laughs> I, I, I was just making a joke, but um, there isn't really much to that joke, but it is really funny. So <laughs> I, I yeah. made me laugh. And then I guess, it, it, you know, in the final analysis, as long as the joke makes you laugh, then it's allowed. Isn't that, that's how it goes. Yeah, I, you, you can imagine John Waters sort of sitting there. And he said he didn't have the whole thing entirely scripted out. He kind of wrote bits as he went along, as the movie was kind of, you know, forming itself. And, and, and again, I can't stress how incredibly low budget this was. I mean, it had to be kind of a beg, borrow, and steal type of thing. Any kind of money that he got his hands on, uh, from friends, family, grants, you know, working odd jobs. I think there's even a few scenes where he talks about he had to use like a wind-up camera. You can see some differences in film stock and kind of the steadiness of the image. I think some of the shoplifting scenes, you know, where Divine's like, you know, stealing steaks and going to different stores. Oh my gosh. These <laughs> <That> were, <scene. laughs> right. These were very much shot completely on the fly. And and I mean it's like, you know, he's probably, you know, scrummaging around to get the cheapest reel of film that he can just to create, you know, a, a couple minutes worth of, of of finished footage. I mean, that's that is the other thing that is just quite so remarkable. And maybe it's already been remarked upon, but this film really did come up from the deepest underbelly of the underground. Uh, 
you know, he, he, he circulated it in his local community. He had ambitions, but there was no guarantee that this film was destined to be talked about, you know, some 50 odd years after it was created, uh, much less become this kind of, you know, marker in the sand of this, this milestone of gross out cinema and, and even like a catalyst for the whole midnight movie phenomenon, which is, is kind of lost nowadays, but there was a time when going to repertory theaters and gathering with a bunch of rowdy misfits and oddballs and nonconformists was the thing to do. And again, that's my first encounter with this movie up until, more recently I, I i never got the laser disc i i i thought about getting the dvd but i've never really committed myself to it again with it being now on the criterion channel i think it's i don't know if it is it part of a any kind of a particular bundle that anybody knows of or do they just bring it back because it's pride month or what i'm not I've, really sure i mean i think it's the john waters bundle because i know polyester and and female trouble and, and multiple maniacs i think are all part of the okay. John Waters thing. And those other films have all been released on Criterion Disc. Mm-hmm. So it does kind of raise the expectations that a reissue, uh, presumably on Blu-ray DVD of Pink Flamingos, might not be that far in the offing, um, which I think would be interesting because it now would bring this movie into much more accessibility for uh, a whole new generation of young people. <laughs> and as I've been kind of you know, kind of dabbling in TikTok for the past several months. And I, I recognize there's a whole different audience of, of folks watching Criterion and, and getting into it, you know, over in that community. I do wonder uh, how many of those, you know, 20-somethings have seen this film and what they think would think of it if they have and what they would think of it if it's yet to be discovered. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how John Waters plays with the younger set, but it is kind of an interesting thought to speculate about uh, his legacy going forward, and in particular this this film. Uh, you know, I, when I get into TikTok, people ask me about Solo. They talk about, you know, Come and See, Len, movies that have this kind of, intensity this kind of over the topness about them with the violence and the you know the the provocation and all of that <laughs> uh pink flamingos is still kind of a you know at the current at the moment a little bit harder to obtain i mean there is a dvd that you could order if you want to it's not that expensive but it's it's not really a mainstream product but if criterion actually does re-release this uh, that will launch it to a new level of prominence. And I kind of wonder what kind of ripple effects might uh, we see uh, in it, if that happens. I mean, it is it is fascinating um, to track uh, just that time span that you're talking about. Like, you're right, we do not have the midnight movie. That, I mean, that was even before my time um, that that sort of ended, where El Topo's Rocky Horror Picture Shows mm-hmm, yeah. and, and Pink Flamingo's. Um, and, and, you know, if I, I thought about that while watching this and, and, and female trouble as well, it's like, if, if this figure of divine and, and John waters 
you know, came now, like, would they have this kind of cemented reputation? I mean, it goes all the way to the top. Like, like Disney modeled Ursula from the Little Mermaid off of Divine. Like that is undeniable. Undeniable. That is crystal right there. Right. And that is the highest like level of consumer consumerism mass media like it's disney right like they're a giant they, they're still a giant and so like would a figure like if, if a figure like divine and john waters came nowadays would they have that kind of sphere of influence probably not because the, the just the way this stuff is serviced to us is is different than it was i mean that is uh, you know, in, in much broader sense, like the Criterion Collection, right? Here we have a company that is curating uh, films that are so different as like, you know, broadcast news and come and see and, you know, uh, my man Godfrey and this, like, like they're all, but they're all being served for to you from the same uh, curation system. So, like how how does a film how does John Waters and Divine in a film like Pink Flamingo now now how would they work against that kind of comparison? So it's just I don't know it just really fascinates me how films change uh, over time, even though the film itself right is the same as it was when it first screened when you first watched it, David. Well, and Waters himself says there are scenes that he would not do nowadays, that he he's not exactly repentant or anything like that, but he recognizes that he was <laughs> really lashing out and there's there's something kind of fundamentally wrong or creepy. I mean, I think the insemination scene that, that Shelley mentioned as the as his in his opinion the filthiest, I think he recognizes that's just really deep down wrong. <laughs> but it was part of his his expression, his his backlash. And I think that is the thing. You know, this is a film that was a statement made in contradiction to certain values of its time, certain experiences that he and his collaborators, his, his fellow creatives, had gone through, or he knew that other people around this, in this society were experiencing. And he's speaking up for them and, and not in this kind of, you know, noble, you know, uh, heroic way. He's just, he's just spitting it out there and, and um, letting the chips fall where they may. But, you know, as, as anybody, I mean, I think what, wasn't he like what, 20 years old or something? I mean, he was a still a very young guy when he put this thing together. And I think that's another really remarkable uh factoid to to recall is that these were these were young folks really just kind of sowing their oats and and feeling the the you know the fullness of 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 life that they'd given they've created this opportunity for themselves to to put a message out there and um you know largely perhaps in its conception it was intended for his friends and for the kind of the wider circle i think he said his original audience were just kind of a bunch of rowdy bikers and he wasn't even really speaking to the gay community or or even the hippies it was just whoever would want to come to his (laughs) presentation and watch a, a fucked up film yeah as he put it and uh that that was his that was his uh target audience and then uh, kind of things took root and blew up from there 
So I'm thinking this might be a good time to start winding the conversation down. I want to give everybody a chance to kind of, you know, lay in with whatever thoughts, observations, you know, significant bits caught their attention. And we'll just uh, kind of give everybody a chance to do a, a last go around here. So who wants to jump in? Well, I, I want to recognize, you know, Baltimore. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like a character in all of his films. And I, as, as some, I, I'm from, the, I've never been to Baltimore, but um, I have a good friend who's from there. And, um, Lauren Berger, by the way, shout out. And, uh, but I, I'm from Milwaukee and we're so proud of our town. And I feel like people in Baltimore are, have the same kind of thing. And now that I know that there's a statue of divine in Baltimore, I am like now is I've always wanted to do like a John Waters kind of like tour of Baltimore and yeah, now, pilgrimage yeah, definitely yeah yeah now I definitely want to go but I I love how Baltimore is almost like a character in his films you know and in the commentary he talks about how like the Marvel's house that's where he and Mink Stoll um, lived at the time like they filmed in their own house and how he still lives in the same zip code and the post office where they they send the turd you know to uh, Babs Johnson, a trailer, Phoenix, Maryland, one of my favorite parts, <laughs> uh, from the filthiest people alive. You know, that was his post office and his, like, the, his postal worker. Um, and so, and, and how the cast was, like, all of his friends, which he must have a million friends, because the opening titles took forever, because there was, like, 500 people listening. So, it's listed. So, I just, I, I love that part of John Waters, how he's just so baltimore centric. Yeah, 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 just the locality, the, the fact that this really comes from a, a genuine community. This isn't just some, you know, bunch of suits sitting in a, you know, in a corporate suite saying, how can we really piss off the masses and create some controversy? I mean, you see that happening nowadays in reality TV and, and even in other kind of big budget movie th productions, uh, even somebody like uh, Lars von Trier, you know, they're, 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 you can kind of, recognize that they're calculating you know what's the next level of outrage and and um disruption that we can come up with here um there's something that just feels a little bit more calculated about it at this point in time um john waters especially in these early films um it feels very organic and and heartfelt even and 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 really after this i think pink flamingos he recognized the gross out um you know nauseating wildness had kind of run its course i mean he could have continued perhaps but he took it in some different directions and i think even that indicates uh, both artistic and personal maturity and and development and that's a good thing too does will want to go next did we lose will no I, i'm just i'm just thinking it's oh, a great movie sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's fun. Uh, what, a, what a what a great movie this is i don't have any i don't have anything to add besides uh if we're going to talk about balmer we also got to talk about john water's fantastic um narration yes. yeah yes which is so wonderful and um, really brings home the Balmer accent. And um, and I have been a Balmer, and I've been to um, see a few places that, before I was a John Waters fan, that, that are clearly places that had John Waters influence after the fact. A couple of restaurants and things that are clearly, uh, now that we know what's the Waters place, we're all going to capitalize on the Watersiness of Baltimore. And 
remind everybody, yeah, this is the John Waters place. <laughs> so I really like that. And um, what a thrill. Yeah. Well, thanks, John. There is a link in the show notes uh, about, it's called Visit Baltimore. So click on that and you will get a tour of some of the John Waters, uh, you know, iconic locations. And it looks like he did this very much in conjunction with the official Baltimore Tourist Bureau. So he's gone legit, folks. <laughs> I mean, there's, I think there's two reasons to go visit Baltimore. I'm sure there are more reasons than just two, but Edgar Allan Poe and John Waters. To me, that yeah. is like the, yin and the, the one and the two. Well, you know, and for a city to have a claim of fame, those are two pretty big names. Agreed. Agreed. All right. So any any other final comments before we wrap things up? Just my favorite John Waters quote is, um, if you go home with someone and they don't have books, don't fuck them. That's my favorite John Waters quote. <laughs> <laughs> well, he says he has 11,000 books in his personal collection. I just heard that today. On oh, my, uh, so he's a, uh, if not, he's a well-read. I mean, I, he didn't say he's read them all, but he's at least collected them. So, uh, All right. Well, folks, I think we've come to the end of our uh, conversation. Um, there's always room to say more in the comments section on my Facebook page. So it's Criterion Reflections, the group. We'll post a link and uh, give you a chance to weigh in. Again, I know that this film has polarized uh, reactions and responses. I'm not sure we've been able to convert some of the detractors that are out there. And uh, I respect the fact that this may be a step too far or many steps too far for a lot of folks. Um, I, I totally understand that. I, I definitely want to reiterate that. This is not a film that I'm going to say I recommend it or everybody needs to check this out. Um, there are probably a lot of people who would be better off just letting this one pass on by but i have enjoyed immensely this conversation uh brad shelley will you've all been very helpful in, in allowing me to process my own complicated reactions to this movie and uh, listeners you've got a chance to kind of weigh in if uh if you feel so led to do that uh my next episode is going to be on andre tartovsky's solaris so there's a little neck snapping <laughs> <laughs> there's another great double feature <laughs> but between before that next episode i'm going to be doing a episode with trevor barrett of our inside the box podcast we're going to talk about the samurai trilogy uh starring tashiro mifune based on the life of Musashi Miyamoto. So uh, pretty epic trilogy from uh, 1950s Japan right there. So that's what I've got coming up in the near future. Uh, let's just ask for updates or any other kind of final statements. So uh, Shelley, uh, tell me a little bit and tell our listeners, how can people connect with you? And uh, what do you want to kind of put out there as your kind of presence on social media and ability for people to learn a little bit more about what you're all about well i am on um facebook um i i'm old enough and don't care about social media enough to have an instagram or anything like that or tiktok so facebook for me um i'm a member of several criterion groups um another group so you probably have seen uh, annoying comments from me there i have a outdated website um that i do update once in a while i recently was part of the uh santa barbara international film festival and so that's the last time I put up content, but I'm at um, thecinemafile.com. 
um, if you want to see some older reviews. <laughs> but other than that, pretty much the same. Excellent. Well, go ahead and send me some links. I'll put those links in the show notes for people to connect with your Facebook page or whatever else you want to make public out there. And uh, definitely great to have you on. You are welcome back. Look at my spreadsheet. Let me know if you want to do this again, and we'll uh, keep the conversation flowing, okay? Thank you. Yes. Excellent. Brad, any updates you want to share with our listeners? Um, Not so much. Just uh, it's nice uh, we're finally getting out of, uh, we're finally in phase one, I call it here in, in Toronto. So um, we're all kind of slowly getting back to normal. So hopefully life starts to feel like it should. Um, you can find my reviews uh, on Letterboxd at, at, Brad, at Mr. Brad McD. And yeah, just like Shelly, I am in all of the uh, Facebook groups. So you, we can chat there. Fantastic. And Will, how about you? What's up? Yeah, same old, same old. Um, not much update since we were last chat. Um, waiting to see how summer goes. Might have some gigs coming up that take me out of town in safe ways. But otherwise, uh, I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying the summer. I'm enjoying um, my time watching movies and making music and talking to you, oh. David, from time to time, and doing this podcast and uh, meeting all the nice people. Hey, but since find me on Facebook on. Instagram on Letterboxd and look at the show notes. I'll see you there. Um, and um, don't forget that if you're ever suddenly accosted by a group of policemen, you must murder and eat them. <laughs> no matter no matter what the charge is, it's the right thing to do. And and I want you to do that with great aplomb and with laughter and with poppers. That's what and a saying. singing asshole. <laughs> yes. And please, please. Okay. Well, blue lives matter, and they're kind of tasty as well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty bad taste, but uh, and, and that's how we end it. So thanks for listening, everybody. I appreciate your endurance and putting up with all this. <laughs> Bye-bye.
So my brother, my brothers, he told me, this is, this is my dad, by the way, he's a, a 60 year old adult human. My brother, my older brother, Robert, he, uh, he told me when he was in college, he saw this, this crazy movie and you know, I've always been heard of this crazy movie and I've always wanted to see it. And, um, and so I was, he's building up, he's building up this big thing. So he's building up and he's going, and uh, I saw this movie, maybe I'm going to tell the name of it to you and you're going to get your opinion on it, get your thoughts on it. Because uh, I know you're the movie guy. I don't really know what like my dad just to, to make it clear. My dad is not a movie guy. Um, he's not an art guy. He, he's he's got no. Uh, he's 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 just got he just just the hits, please. Just the hits, ma'am. So my my dad is. I'm gonna continue as my dad now. Oh, just uh, uh yeah, this movie. I'm gonna tell you the name of it. I'm gonna tell you it was the most crazy. I couldn't even finish it. It was one of the the worst things I ever. It's this movie. It's called Pink Flamingos. I'm like, oh yeah, Dad, I just watched that. I just watched that the other day. And he's like, oh my God, this movie. Oh my God, it's crazy. These guys are doing this and that. And they're doing all these things. And, and I'm, <laughs> he clearly wants a little bit of context. So I give him a little bit of context as to the John Waters. I even explain to him <laughs> Marcel Duchamp. I explain to him um, why something uh, might not be the thing that you think it's you think it is you know like art sometimes has like more than it's more about more than one thing he might just think it's about one thing so he's like i just he's like the acting is terrible the the cameras they're so terrible and they, everything is they're they doing all this gross stuff and they're doing this crazy thing and i'm just explaining to him you know like a little bit about waters and then the dreamlanders and what this film meant in 1972 and uh, explained a little bit about like what he was going for with the dialogue, and um, <laughs> my dad said something that perfectly encapsulated um, what it is about my interests as a film goer that my dad would struggle to connect with. Um, he, <laughs> I explained this all to him, and at the end of it, he says, "Are you telling me they made it bad on purpose?" And, uh, enough said. Anyway, it's cool thinking that my, uh, my uncle Robert saw this in college right when it came out and, uh, told my dad about it. My dad didn't forget for nearly 50 years. And, um, and after explaining to my, my dad a little more about what's going on, he said, uh, Okay, you know, maybe, you know, maybe maybe I'll go through and I'll thumb I'll, like I'll, I'll thumb through like a little bit of the rest. Maybe, maybe I don't know. I'm not gonna promise I'm gonna finish it. I don't know. But maybe I'll see a little more of it. So I think I don't know. I think I I want him on. I told him, I told him he doesn't win an award for finishing the movie. Like it's totally fine if he doesn't want to see it. But it's clearly stuck with him. Um, and uh, then he segued him going. You know, I used to talk about what's the worst movie of all time. Worst movie of all time, I'll tell you what it is, is Joe Dirt. So that's um, it's a little bit more of my dad for you. It was funny, though, because the other day when I watched Pink Flamingos, I noticed that somebody on my Criterion channel had seen it. Now, I, I, I can reveal to you that two people do have my password. Uh, one is a friend of nearly my age, and one is my dad. And I never thought it was my dad was the one who... <laughs> stopped in the middle of Pink Flamingos uh, so yeah on his own accord he went searching and watched it so that's, that's the Pink Flamingos story